Welcome to episode 83 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we're proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Comes falling down for you. There's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What is going on? Not much, Jesse. Just basking in the glory of another Lord's Day. Excited mm. to do some podcasting. And, uh, and here we are. Yeah, it's just, you can't beat it. It's a great way to spend a Sunday afternoon. So let's jump right into some affirmations and denials. What you got? So I am following up on an affirmation for a little while ago. So if you remember back, I don't know, probably two months ago, I had an affirmation about an open door for the gospel. And I was going to go and teach this class at the public library. And the class was yesterday. It was awesome. Um, We had probably four or five people from the community show up and several people from our church. Um, And it was great because they had us positioned in this sort of common area in the library. And so I was giving my lecture and people were coming into the library who weren't coming to my lecture, but they were kind of by default coming to my lecture. And it was great because the way I had structured it, I got to preach the gospel because I was just explaining what the Bible's about without like overtly like preaching. So people in the library got to hear the gospel. So I never would have imagined four months ago that I would have been standing in the public library on a Saturday afternoon preaching the gospel to people. And what's really cool is there was this, this kid who came, he's probably like, I think he said he was in eighth or ninth grade. And, um, he came up to me afterwards, was talking about how he appreciated that I was helping like give him tools to like be confident in his faith and be confident in the Bible. And then his family came to church this morning, which is That's amazing. Awesome. Yeah. It's, it's just awesome. I mean, I, I, he walked in and like, I started crying cause it was just like, this was just an amazing way to think about like God's providence and glory and his provision. And just, if you're faithful to just do what you can, God will use what you are able to do. Like he, he sets up those opportunities. So we may think like, oh, it's just the public library. Oh, it's just for people from the community. But like, this may be the beginning. I don't know if it is or not, but this may be the beginning of this kid's like growth in faith. So it's just really humbling that God would use a, you know, like a frail, broken vessel like me. So you had a little bit of like a Mars Hill thing going on. Not like Mars Hill, like the church. I mean, Mars Hill, like Paul. Well, that's going to get into my denial. (laughs) <laughs> but we'll wait for that. What are you affirming? Here's the thing for, for everybody listening. That was not a setup. I had, I have no idea what your denial is. So well, I wasn't, I'm just super curious. I wasn't going to do a denial, but since you bring it up, I'll, I'll revert back to what I had planned. Oh, I love this. All right. So let me speed through my affirmation real quick. I'm going to affirm getting a subject that you're so passionate about that you can't help, but move your arms while you talk about that subject. <laughs> And the reason I'm bringing this up is because, like many people in the Western world, I have a Fitbit, which is an activity tracker. It's on my wrist. It's supposed to capture a whole bunch of data. And one of the things it captures is how many hours in your day you've been active, which they define by taking 250 steps in that hour. So I happened to look back last week when we recorded, yeah, and I noticed that for whatever reason, the hour I spoke with you was one of those active hours, <laughs> even though I was definitely in a chair the entire hour. That's amazing. So th- that just goes to show how much we love theology that like if people could see that the hand movements we both have, it puts John Piper to shame yeah. most of the time. I should, I'm on Fitbit. Uh, they, you can sign up to be like a field tester for them. And I should write and ask them if they can add an activity to Fitbit for podcasting. That would be fantastic. <laughs> 
So They'd be I'm, like, I'm what are you talking about? Everybody should try to find the topic that makes you move your hands. And hopefully theology is one of those things. Yeah. I have a feeling if people are listening to our show that theology is probably one of those things. I'm sure people's hands are moving all over the place while we're talking. Probably yeah. in like, sometimes I assume people are just shaking their fists in vehement disagreement. Yeah. Sometimes. Maybe they're, ra- ra- maybe they're raising their hands in praise. I maybe. Don't I don't know. Not a lot of activity there. All right. Anyway, what is your denial? So speaking of shaking my fists in anger. I, 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 this might seem weird and stalkerish, but because of some of the blogging activities that I've engaged in and some of the kind of, um, I don't want to call it journalism. That's probably too strong of a term, but some of the journalistic type things that I've done regarding, um, kind of tracking the Tulian Tavidian story and Mark Driscoll story, I have a Google alert set up for Mark Driscoll and I get a Google alert today. And the headline of the article says, Mark Driscoll returns with new book, quote, Spirit-Filled Jesus. And I, I literally just like set my phone down on the table and put my hands in my heads, in my, or my head in my hands was like, Ugh. and it's like, why, why are you still a thing? Why are you still around? And it's funny because the article starts out and it says, Pastor Mark Driscoll is set to release another book years after allegation of plagiarism surfaced. And I wanted to be like, <laughs> is he just going to like copy like Sinclair Ferguson's book on the Holy Spirit? So I, I, I'm just, I'm denying Mark Driscoll and I'm denying just this obsession that evangelicals have with like their, their, their celebrity pastor. And like, if we treated people in the Christian world the way we're supposed to and like not put people on a pedestal, then Mark Driscoll and Tulian Tavidian, they wouldn't be a thing anymore because right they wouldn't have a platform to continue coming back to. People wouldn't buy their books and they would ha- they would have to fade into obscurity, which is what should happen. Right. But because Mark Driscoll puts out a book and people are going to buy it. And that's just his, that's just the bottom line. So no matter whether he's a fugitive from church justice or church discipline, which he is, or not, people are going to buy this book. And that's, that's, I'm denying that all day long. The cult of personality is really strong, isn't it? It in is. kind of general mainstream evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. And say what you will about a lot of the reformed, like the Puritans or the reformers themselves, but they did not have cults of personality. Like, in fact, I'm pretty sure that if he could, Spurgeon would roll over in his grave knowing that his face is on t-shirts and stuff. Like, that was not his jam at all. I thought he was on like billboards and stuff during his day. I think he was in a couple of places, but I'm not even sure how comfortable he was with that. I mean, I think he would, yeah. what you said about obscurity, I think is like, I would say the essence of a lot of those guys, they preached in such a way so that the gospel would be made paramount and they could fade away. And through time, they only hoped that the message of Jesus would move forward because of what they did, yeah. but not because of who they were. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably true. So what about you? What are you denying today? My denial is dumb now compared to yours. Like it doesn't really have a strong <laughs> spiritual element. I was just going to deny little injuries that make you feel like a British schoolgirl. Oh, Unless yeah. We've got some British schoolgirls that listen. I don't, I don't know. We no, might. Just got weird. We possibly yeah. could. We talked about that last week. Yeah. That was my attempt at making it awkward, which I think I've succeeded in. But uh, I, this week in running, I gave myself like a compound fracture in my toe, my big toe. And it hurts like the dickens. Yeah, but oh, yeah. it's like such a small injury. Yeah, toes are bit to- those are those are bad when you break those. Yeah, so it, there's a little compound fracture. And there's nothing you can do, of course. No, you don't. You can't like straighten it out or no, put you, cast on it. You, you just, just walk like uh, what's his face from the Hunchback of Notre Dame for a couple weeks. 
Quasimodo? Quasimodo, yeah. You walk like Quasimodo for a couple of weeks, and then one day you wake up and it's fine. But it's like the day before <laughs> you were still in agony, and then the next day everything's fine. But, yeah. The Reform Medical Cast. Yeah, don't don't take any medical advice that we have for you at all. No, that no. is not a good idea. Mm-mm. Speaking of not giving advice, but talking about practical, important things. Let me kick off our conversation, Tony, with a little question to you. Let me preempt that for one second, because I have okay. a correction that I need to make from last oh, week. Oh, yeah, that's right. Go ahead. So last week, if you remember, we talked about Molinism, and we were talking about, I had this like epiphany about uh, the implications of Molinism and Christ's uh, peccability, which a lot of Molinists right. hold. And I included William Lane Craig as someone who would hold to Christ's peccability, that is to say that Christ could have sinned. I went back and did some research because I wasn't 100% sure. As I said, this was kind of coming to me on the fly. William Lane Craig actually affirms Christ's impeccability. So I'm not 100% sure how he maintains that Christ had libertarian free will but didn't have the power of contrary choice in certain circumstances. But he does, in Philosophical Foundations, say that Christ is impeccable. And to his credit, he makes the same basic argument that uh, the Reform camp has always made that since Christ is a single person who is God, that even though his human nature is not qualitatively different than uh, Adam's was, he still is not able to sin because he can't actualize those sins. So right. he does not hold that. I'm not sure how he maintains libertarian free will in that um, or if he consistently does. But I wanted to be fair to him. Like we said, we want to accurately represent people that we're opposing. So he doesn't hold it. But there are Molinists who would hold to Christ's peccability. And so I think that criticism or that kind of aha moment that we had last week still, still holds stands. for them. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Here's how, though, he can make that claim really crisp. Call us, William Lane Craig, 607 <laughs> funny story before we get into our topic. So I work, <laughs> I work at, I work at the hospital and I have to call uh, a lot of people and I have to leave a lot of voicemails and I have to leave phone numbers on the voicemails. And I actually left a voicemail and I called the person and I left our podcast voicemail <laughs> on uh, the, the phone. So I had to call them right back and I got them the second time. And I was like, I'm really sorry. Oh, I have this that thing. Is so great. So please don't call that and leave your medical information on the voicemail. So. That is so great. Although I would say we're HIPAA compliant, right? No, no, we're definitely not. <laughs> no. So I, don't do that. But it was really, I mean, I got a hold of them. It was really funny. They, they laughed it off. They like, they Wait, have a, how, how far did you get through the number before you realized you all made the a way. mistake? I had hung up the phone. I had left wow. the voicemail and I was all done. And then I, I actually was like, did, did I? No. Wait. No. And so I called them right back and they're like, yeah, I've never, I, I don't know what 607 is. Where is that? I was like, forget about it. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. Please call though. Leave your questions or maybe requests for medication, whatever you want on our voicemail. <laughs> yeah. I'm We're not happy gonna, to receive your I'm calls. not going to fill your immune suppression through the phone. Yeah, probably not. You're going to need a prescription. Yeah, probably. And we don't take FSA. But True. so here, speaking though of money, here's the question I want to start us out with. Because you and I, we live in the United States. We do. It's that time of year. It is. Have you filed your taxes yet? I have not because I am lazy and distracted. So I, I tend to leave it to the very last minute. You and me both, brother. Which this I'm year totally is, with that. is one day later than it normally is. I know. We get that extra day. Although last year we did too. So. It's all about the calendar. And it is. I was thinking about this because... There's few things, I think, in culture and time 
that are as connecting as taxes. There's yeah. two things as hated as taxes. And it really just struck me again because I was reading through Luke's gospel. The fact that in our culture, we say in a cliche and kind of tongue-in-cheek way that there's nothing certain but death and taxes. And the Bible addresses both of those. Yeah. But taxes are the one thing you'd say might be the kind of thing that doesn't come up because the Bible generally is apolitical. And it's not trying to take a particular political stance. Right. And yet we have this whole discussion about taxes in several different parts. And I thought, let's do that thing. Let's talk a little bit about taxes and what it means to like the Christian, I guess, testimony of how we understand taxes and what our attitudes are like when we approach that subject, because we all have to deal with them pretty much. Yeah. So we're just going to repeat taxation is theft for the rest of the episode, right? <laughs> that's the whole thing. Well, we're just going to continue to that's yell, actually just scream that way. until people I agree. Wanna, I do want to talk about that because... Uh, so th- this is the great thing about this subject is people have really strong opinions mm-hmm. and I'm trying to understand as we go to the scriptures, whether or not those opinions really are entirely relevant to what we do with how Jesus commands us to interface with taxes. Does that make sense? It does. Let's do it. All right. So let me go to like, should we just go to Luke 20 real quick and yeah. just drop the, because I love this little passage for lots of reasons. I think just because Jesus is such a great teacher and because he is so able to turn everything around. So it's possible that in teaching that we don't have recorded that Jesus spoke explicitly about taxes. But in this case, we have, of course, him a trap being set for him and the subject is brought to him. And I think the test is genius. And right. I think the way Jesus addresses it is even better. So this is Luke 20. And I love how this is like just dripping with all of this sarcasm. So yeah. this is starting in verse 21. So they, and that is these... Um, these spies that were basically sent out to catch Jesus in some kind of half truth or turn of phrase. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Now to pause there, I don't know how you feel, but I would really have preferred if Jesus answered this question differently. Yeah. To be honest. <laughs> yeah. It would have been great if he was like, no, no, just don't do well, that. Well, if he had said like taxation is theft. Yeah, we would have been like, listen, then we can shake our fists happily every April 15th and say like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do a conscience objector. All right. So is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Tribute. But he perceived their craftiness and he said to them, show me a denarius whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said but marveling at his answer, they became silent. So what, what do you think about that? Like this gets talked about a lot, but what are the things that kind of come off the top to you in this interaction? Well, I mean, just on a very surface level, like Jesus is a master of, this is going to sound blasphemous. This is not intended to be a, a slight. Jesus is a master of evading like unrighteous yeah. questions. Yeah, I guess so. So he, he totally, he, he, they come to trap him and he basically says, like, well, you're trying to trap me into making myself a criminal by saying we shouldn't pay taxes. So now I'm telling you, you should render to Caesar what is Caesar's. So what are you going to do? Deny me? Like, are you going to say that you shouldn't do that and thereby make you the enemy of the state? So he takes the exact trap that they're wanting to lay for him and he flips it around on them. So I think on some level, we have to be cognizant of the fact that... um 
This is not necessarily saying we should always obey every single thing the government says. Right. Because he says, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. There's one part that he's saying, like, look, lawfully, you know, lawfully constituted government authorities are to be obeyed. But he's also he's also using their trap against them. So we have yes. to be aware of that before we go any deeper. I think sometimes there seems to be two tendencies with this text. There's the people who completely explain it away, who are, are trying to, like, justify ignoring the, the government. And then there's the people that use it to say, like, we well, have to do everything the government says, regardless right. of what it is. But I think it's more nuanced than that. You're right. There's this great relief that I think Jesus creates there. Because it's not just about what he said, but what he's implying. So if he's saying there are some things, like you said, that should legitimately be rendered to the government, either by way of authority or finance, he's also saying basically what belongs to God. That's like the implied question. Right. And I I think there's something there about, again, like whose image is on you and does, who do you, who do you, do you, who are you in the course of understanding how you've been made and how you've been created? So you're exactly right. That's why I think this is brilliant. So we get in here some instruction on what to do when it comes to taxes because it's an explicit question. Like he doesn't necessarily avoid that. But he also says at the same time that you ought to be asking yourself what belongs to God then? And are you giving that over to him in the same way that you have to honor right. the governmental authorities? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's an interesting text and it's an interesting trap for them to lay too. I think one of the other things that strikes me with, with the gospels in general is how the people who, and this comes is this like straight out of Psalm 2, the people who were normally at each other's throats when Jesus comes on the scene are all of a sudden like BFFs. Right, yeah. Right? So the Pharisees, um, I don't know if for sure if it was the Pharisees in here, the scribes and chief priests. So it was the scribes are usually Pharisees and the chief priests at the time were Sadducees. So there's two parties that are already at each other's throats. Then they come to Jesus and basically try to trap him by saying like, well, you got you to gotta obey Caesar, <laughs> which they didn't want to do either. So right. there's all these different dynamics in play that are really interesting. It's all a setup. And I love that Jesus sees through that. The following verses, beginning 27, I always actually kind of laugh when I read this verse, which yeah. says, there came to him the Sadducees, those who deny that there's a resurrection. And what yeah. do you think they asked him? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's really funny. It's about resurrection. So it's obvious that, their, their heart are far from having the right intentions. And when I read this, what's interesting to me from, from a somewhat of a financial perspective, but this is going to get a little bit nerdy if, if you're willing to stick with me for a second. So, oh, well, let's do it. So here's the thing. So I don't know a whole lot about ancient money, but denarius obviously was made of a certain amount of actual raw material that would have some kind of inherent value. I mean, you right. can melt it down. It, would, it was a partial kind of mixture of different elements and metals, but it had inherent value. And what's interesting to me here is trying to understand what Jesus is saying about our value as well as Caesar. So if this coinage that Caesar has basically said, this is money by fiat, he's proclaimed, let it be that this be accepted as money. So for us, like in the US, like that's obviously dollar dollar bills, y'all. Like right. we money is weird because it's a social contract. Like there's nothing inherently valuable about the paper or the ink that the $100 is printed on. But I guarantee this, like if I'm out walking in the neighborhood and I see like a muddy $100 bill, I'm going to pick that bad boy up. Oh yeah, for like, sure. No, no questions asked. If I see a $100 bill that a dog is peeing on, I'm going to wait for the dog to finish, maybe finish peeing. And then I'm going <laughs> to grab that $100 bill. Pee is, um, you're in hysteria, so just go for it. 
Yeah. See, see, I love that encouragement. It actually makes me feel better about doing it. So, <laughs> but, and the thing is, in that situation, I'm picking it up because somebody has told me by fiat, this is valuable. But what we're getting here from God or from Jesus through God is this understanding that we are God's creation. We are not worth something because he's just commanded that we are. We right. are worth something because we're made in a like image. In other words, there's, there's actual inherent value. Yeah. So I see some of that going on here, that taxes are all about what's temporal. And so you, sh- you ought to pay them and not worry so much about them. And at the same time, it's amazing how, like to your point, he takes something that's basically just all about financial transaction and about oppression and turns it into this really glorious spiritual lesson about giving yeah. to God the things that belong to him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's right on. And, and that's where I think we, we run into problems. We always have to remember that the Bible is not usually answering the questions that we're asking. So part of learning to read the Bible well is to learn to ask the same questions that the Bible is asking and go to the scriptures to answer the questions it's already answering. So when we come to this passage and and use it as a proof text to either I've seen honestly I've seen people who have um used this text both to support paying taxes and to support not paying taxes. So this text can become a bit of a wax nose depending on which perspective you are. But the the answer in the long run is exactly what you're saying, that this text isn't really about paying taxes at all. Right. It, it's the it, same that's thing. That's what's beautiful. And it's the same thing with the next, the next section on the resurrection, right? They're not really asking about questions about marriage. That's the, that's kind of the, the question that they're asking. But if you go to, if you go to this passage as a proof text about marriage and the permanence of marriage, there may be something being taught about the permanence or the the nature of marriage in this text. But this passage is not here to teach us about that. And I think that it's the same thing in the, the previous passage here, that this is not, there may be a principle here about, about whether or not and how we should pay our taxes, what our attitude should be when we pay our taxes. But that's not the point of why this text is in the Gospels here. Right. I agree. And I think this is where, if I can take us to Romans 13 quick, we get some kind of confluence and wonderful support that lends itself to both the spiritual understanding in Luke 20 and also the practical application that Jesus is clearly saying, still, there are things that belong to Caesar rightfully. And you ought to give those freely and without compulsion. And I think that's where I want to spend some time talking about, well, what does that look like? How, how are, what are our attitudes should be toward taxation, toward obedience in small things like this? So yeah. the beginning of Romans chapter 13 is well known, and it starts off with saying, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And it ends that paragraph with the point I want to kind of bring us to the focus on, which is basically the application, the outworking of that statement. So this is what Paul says, therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. And so this is what I was thinking about recently. If that is true, then maybe is it fair to say that our Christian perspective should be whether or not we think that the government wastes our money, whether we think they spend it immorally, or in ways that would not be efficient. It almost seems like here, Paul, who's like not under any pretense. I mean, he knows Nero. He knows the situation in which he's writing these words. It's not like in a theological laboratory where it's under ideal conditions. Right. 
it's it's almost as if he's saying like what's more important here is your obedience in a way that doesn't go against God's rule of law. Yeah. Then it is for you to try to rebel in these nuanced ways and not give over your money to a government that may be oppressing you. In fact, I guess I could say this way, like even if we believe taxation is theft, is that a totally moot point? Because what God requires here is obedience. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not entirely sure how to answer that because I think... <laughs> Great, that's... Yes. Podcast's <laughs> over. I, I think on one level, <clears throat> there's a place for conscientious objection, right? It's it's interesting to me because I don't, I don't remember exactly how long ago it was, but there was this big fuss because Shane Claiborne um, he, he didn't pay all his taxes. He, he made, he, part of it was that he made a big public fuss about the fact that he was only paying part of his, do you remember this? Yeah, vaguely. I yeah, do yeah. remember this. He, now you say it. He, he wrote a letter to the government and he paid part of his taxes. And what he did is he calculated what the percentage of the federal budget was. I think it was military was what he was going after was used for military spending. And so he paid the percentage of his tax burden that was equivalent to the percentage that wasn't being paid for taxes. And evangelicals almost across the board, especially the more conservative ones flipped their lids. They freaked out and every single one of them went to this passage. You pay what is due to Caesar. You render taxes to whom taxes are owed. But then, you know, flash forward four years and we see, I see evangelicals making the exact same argument about abortion. Right. And so exactly. I, I do think there's some area for conscientious objection. Um, and you know what? I have more respect for people who are willing to go to jail and not pay their taxes for the sake of conscience than people who just want to like spout off about it, to be honest. But I actually find some of the arguments about taxation being theft to be compelling. I'm not sure that I think about that in terms of like the um like the principle of taxation, but the way that taxation is actually executed in a lot of ways, I think it's coercive. So I think we have to wrestle with that. But I, I think you're right in the long run that the fact that we think that the government is stealing our money does not give us the right to not obey the governing authorities. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. In so much as I think we both say that does not go against our conscience and the word of God, right? We're, we're allowing that to be open-ended. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I don't think, let me, let me put it in a more um, negative sense. I think it would be a difficult argument to make that a taxpayer who has no legal choice in the matter for how their taxes are being spent is complicit morally in the fact that their tax dollars go to fund abortion or war or any of the other things that we are objecting to exactly the the government runs and so because i think that you can't make that connection um philosophically ethically biblically i don't think that that connection can be made i don't think we have a right to morally object to taxes on the basis of where the taxes are being spent so especially in our government where we have a, a voice, now you might say we, we don't actually have a voice, but that's that's not a result of the function of the government. That's a result of the state of our the morality in our country that we don't have a voice. Right. So the idea that, yeah, even if they're stealing from us and using the money for nefarious purposes, especially if they're stealing from us, we're not morally culpable for what they do with that money. I think that's a critical point because right. 
I think we often forget that, again, the situation in which Paul is writing this is probably no less corrupt than where we are at any particular society today. Oh, yeah, at least it's corrupt. Right. So it's not as if he's saying, well, I, I wrote this, but I didn't have a good grasp of what I was really saying. I think it's, this is a really difficult truth because it's basically saying obedience to God is obedience in little things like paying your taxes. Right. And I'm not sure that I often think about it that way. Like have a decent, even a decent attitude about that. I think there's something special about recognizing, you know, like when we get hurt, when we pay our taxes, let me just speak for myself. My first thought isn't, thank you, God, for upholding your covenant from Genesis 3 and yeah. your faithfulness. But that's kind of what we're saying here is human governments are going to be frail and corrupt and messed up. And even amidst of that, it's almost as if God is saying to be obedient to them, of course, is to be obedient to me. And more than that, it's almost like this messed up society in which we live, which we, we pay and fund in part, is an opportunity for God to show his great redemption, his ability to change and transform things, sometimes through those governments, because as Christians, we often and should have a voice to speak out and to transform and to change. But even if it doesn't happen, what I always get confused by is when Christians make a big deal about how tax money is spent, and they'd like to see it spent different ways, so would I. We already know that the government is not our savior. Right. So it seems sometimes like a lot of wasted energy and that we should be focusing on just being obedient. Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, one of the things, you know, I, I certainly am not a um, an old reformed saint by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm, I'm kind of now in sort of the second generation of the young reformed restless people that that movement. N- now I'm seeing people that I would consider young men, um, 20 to 25 year olds coming in. And there is this, um, sort of endemic spirit of rebelliousness that is present in the, that, that demographic of the reform movement. And, you know, we see it as reform pub admins. Um, we see people who just insist on bucking the rules for no good reason. Right. They come in a group, they agree to the rules, and then moments after they start, they're breaking the rules and they're talking about how unfair it is that they're being removed from the group for breaking those rules. And in some senses, um, you know, the reform position on the, the fifth commandment is that the, the command to honor your mother and father is a command not only to, to honor your mother and father, but to honor all authorities over you. And a converse right. command to um, for authorities to protect and care for those who are under their authority. But sometimes you hear like advice given to kids that they should honor their parents um, unless their parents, you know, hit them. Then they should they should get out of that situation. And that just makes me cringe every time I hear it because children are obligated to honor their parents regardless of whether their parents are good parents or bad parents. Right. And I think as Christians, we're obligated to obey our government and to honor our government, whether it's a good government or a bad government. And that's the same. I mean, obviously we're not advocating that if the government commands you to violate God's law, that you do that. But insofar as the government is not commanding you to violate God's law, I don't see an argument for a liberty to just disregard what the government has to say. I agree with you. I think it gets a little bit tricky because 
we get into those shades where we say, well, funding a Planned Parenthood, for instance, is that a violation of God's law or not? And I still think in this, what we see from Paul is that he is covering all of those instances um, by still saying, pay the taxes. Right. And so there's no easy answer to that, but I'd like to think that, you know, sometimes it's okay to be a legalist. So this seems to me like a plain command to almost happily, joyfully, as if giving this money over to God, because God is the one who set these people in control. God's not absent from the budget room when they're deciding how this money is going to be spent. He's present even there and superintending his will. Right. So we just can't forget that God is in the midst of all these things. And I would love to be a legalist on some issues in the sense that I would be obeying these things like paying taxes, like to the letter of the law, with a joyful heart because it's what God has asked me to do. There's, of course, yeah. you can be a legalist and do something with the wrong intent, but I want to have the right intent that follows along with the right content. Yeah. And so I'd be happy to get to heaven and say, for God to say, like, I really appreciate that you paid your taxes. I don't know. And did it, did it in a way where you, you didn't cause up like unnecessary drama and trouble, but yeah. you did it loyally and faithfully, not because you were a citizen of some kind of kingdom on earth, but because you were looking toward a heavenly kingdom. But even in setting your eyes on the heavenly kingdom, you have to respect the fact that God established an earthly, earthly one first. And so you were faithful even to do that, this small thing. I just see there's like a lot of heat over this subject. Yeah. And I, I, I don't really know where to go with it most of the time. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's, you know, we're using taxes as kind of like the, the focus of this conversation, but this extends into other areas of lawful obedience, right? When, when we drive to work every morning, um, there is a hill that we have to drive down and it's really hard to do the 30 mile an hour speed limit. It's hard because it, it's just difficult to follow a 30 mile an hour speed limit. You feel like you're crawling, but it physically it's hard. You have to ride the brakes the entire time. And you know exactly what hill I'm talking about. Yeah, you have oh, yeah. to ride the brakes the entire time. But personally, and I'm not saying I never speed, but personally, I don't have a justification for violating the civil magistrate's command in that instance about how fast I can drive my car. Now, I, I fully affirm the arguments that say the civil magistrate has no response, no right to tell me how quickly I can move my vehicle. They have no right to tell me whether or not I should wear my seatbelt or whether or not I should, this is going to be the controversial one, whether or not I should vaccinate my children. The government should not be telling me those things. Right. But regardless of whether they should or shouldn't, they have told me those things. And so the, the vaccination one's a different question. So exempting that, um, it's not a violation of God's law for me to drive 30 miles an hour on that street. It's not a violation of God's law for me to buckle my seatbelt. So I have no justification for disobeying that law. So for me, being faithful in that small thing, whether it's driving the speed limit or paying your taxes on time or, um, you know, like the census is coming up. People are freaking out about the census, right? Mel, the government is telling you you have to report how many people are living in your house, what their nation of origin is, all these different things. I don't I don't think we have a justification for disobeying them. I mean, what do you think about that? No, I totally agree. That's a great example. That reminds me that I think sometimes we get caught up in the fact that because we live in Western society that is by and large democratized and attempts to be transparent to give people voices, that we get coddled into thinking that we have rights. But the Christian yeah. worldview is explicitly to give up one's rights. Yeah. And I think when God puts all those things into place for us, the speed limit on that hill, the tax bracket that you're going to be in, 
those aren't outside his control, his loving control. So I think it is sometimes a test of will we just give ourselves up and over? Will we lay down our rights? Even if we think, I don't really, even if it's like dumb stuff, like you're saying, I don't want to be told that I have to go 30 here. Right. And if I get pulled over, I'm going to say, I was coming down the hill. It was, uh, it's a big hill. What do you want me to do? You know, yeah. we're, we're laying down volitionally our rights, which is probably just a good exercise in the little things that when it comes to actual real, not real, but but I say sacrifices of a, of a bigger magnitude that were practiced and able to do those things. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, some people might be listening to this and thinking we're kind of pulling this out of nowhere. But when you look at the whole of Christ's um, teaching, this is the, this is part and parcel of the whole thing is governments do things that are unethical and sinful. Right. The, the Roman government did, the United States government does, all governments do, because governments are bodies of sinners trying to regulate the world. Well, of course, that's going to be a problem. But if you look at, um, I'm trying to find the exact passage because I didn't have it in front of me. But when, when Christ is um, in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ says, if someone compels you to take their gear to walk with them for a mile, here it is, it's uh, Matthew 5, 40, I'm going to start reading at 38. It says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, right? Do not resist the one who is evil. Right. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So in, we're looking at it and people are saying like, well, the government slapped me on the right cheek. Do you want me just to turn the other one? You want me just to give them the taxes that they asked for? Come on, right. taxation's theft. Well, if someone slapped you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. Verse 40, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, I think that the implication there is that it's an unjust lawsuit. Right. So if, if anyone would, un, I'm going to insert the word, maybe, maybe someone's going to come back at me and say this is the wrong way to read it, but if anyone would unjustly sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. So even in that situation where someone is, is essentially stealing your tunic from you, you're not only supposed to give them your tunic, you're supposed to give them their cloak too. And if anyone forces you, verse 41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, the context of that is in the Roman Empire, any Roman soldier could co-opt any person that they saw and compel them to go one mile out of their way and carry their gear for them. Now, you could be you could be going to your wife who is in labor, you could be going to your, to the bed of your dying mother. And if they said, grab my gear, let's go. You're compelled to do it. Now that is unjust in so many ways. And it was in, in, in that time frame, it was a symbol of the injustice that people right. could Oppression. just do this to you. But Jesus doesn't say you, you refuse to do that because taxation is theft, right? Compulsory mile carrying of gear is theft. Well, it is. It's a theft of your time. It's a theft of your energy. But he doesn't say you resist that theft. He says you go with him two miles. Now, I'm not saying, um, I am not saying that we should always just roll over and take it, right? Uh, I was reading Herman Bovink today. I had the book on my desk. Um, it's Herman Bovink and the Christian Life, and he talks a lot about how the Sermon on the Mount is uh, Jesus Jesus's explanation to those who are he's teaching about what the kingdom of God looks like when you are in a powerless state, when you are the oppressed minority, what the kingdom of God looks like. 
And so Bavink makes the point that, yeah, th- this has to be understood contextually. We, we can't apply it directly. In his day, the, the Christian church was in a majority dominant position. But he's saying we can't apply it directly. But the principle still stands. Christ is teaching his people not to rebel against injustice with resistance, but to rebel against injustice with love and compassion. Right, exactly. And obedience. And submission to authorities, even when they're unjust, is a way that we submit to God. Yes, that's well said. It's as if these things that he's commanding us, they cause a transition of power. Like in all those examples that you just gave, that volitional love and that service changes the scheme of things. And what I read almost in between the lines, if I can use that phrase, is that those things must be done with love in genuine servitude, because if they're just done by compulsion or begrudgingly, it actually undermines the action itself. So it's almost as if Jesus is saying, if you want to show the power of the kingdom, then pay your taxes, pay them well, because you love me. And because you know that I'm sovereign and providential over all these things, and you respect that, when even in spite of perhaps the evil that you see being pervasive in your own culture or even promulgated by your own government, you're still willing in faithfulness to God to pay your taxes or to go the extra mile. And that's why I think it's beautiful because when we see what Paul is writing there and we see what Jesus is preaching, they're just not in this vacuum. It's not in a safe place where everything is going well. It's in an environment where things are downright awful. And if we live in that environment, I'm sure we'd be crying out and asking for the same type of savior who would break the physical oppression we're under. And instead, Jesus says, no, take it further. Go and sacrifice more. Give up your rights to even go one mile and go two. And so I've often thought, I can't imagine like how that would mess up the Roman soldier. <laughs> It'd be like yeah. when he's like, all right, your obligation is over. And for you or me to be like, I'll, how about I go another mile? Yeah. Let's, let's go. And again, I don't think that's in a like, come at me, bro. I think right. that's more of like, I'm willing to do this for another mile. Yeah. It's almost like God is in control of all things, including what I read this morning, because this is, um, this is on page, uh, 116 of John Bolt's Bovink and the Christian life, which is published by Crossway. Um, some of this appears to be a quote from Bovink, but he doesn't cite where, so I'm not sure where, I'm not exactly sure where Bolt's words end and where Bovink start, but I'm just going to read the whole thing. He says, the cross is not the end. And then he's quoting something. The death of Christ is followed by his resurrection. He's humiliation and by his exaltation. Believers who, quote, temporarily forfeit their rights on earth and patiently suffer injustice, end quote, do not reject justice, but entrust their cause to God who will vindicate them. So, I mean, like I said, it's it's crazy. It's like God is in control and knew what we were going to be talking about and planned this whole thing ahead of time. But that's exactly it, right? Is people look at the taxation that, and, and I hate paying taxes and I get a refund every year, which I know is not a bonus. It just means that I gave the government a, a tax-free loan. I get it. Or an interest-free loan. I get it. But I don't, I don't pay a lot of taxes every year. And I live in New Hampshire, right. so I don't pay state. I don't pay income taxes in the state at all. But it still stinks. It still sucks to pay taxes. Right. I agree. They still, they still keep some of my money that I worked for that God wanted to give to me. But that's where it comes. That's, that's where the rub is. Right. God never really gave me that money. I, I worked to earn that money and God gave it to the government on my behalf, I guess. 
Yes, Or I gave it to the government and God. I don't know how that all works. But God determined where that money would go by determining the government that that takes those taxes out. And that doesn't mean that it's not unjust, right? It was unjust for Pharaoh to kill babies in the Nile. But God was still sovereign over that. God still put Pharaoh on the throne. And you know what? Moses doesn't lead a rebellion. He goes to Pharaoh repeatedly and asks for his people to be let go. So I don't care if you've seen gods of Egypt or whatever, gods in Pharaoh or whatever it is, the, the Christian Bale terrible Exodus movie. Jesus or, uh, Moses is not leading an armed rebellion, and Jesus is not leading an armed rebellion. Maybe sometimes he does, I guess. We could get into like the American Revolution, but I just I think we sometimes we grasp so hard on trying to bring justice of our own that mm-hmm. we forget that it's ultimately God who brings justice about. Yeah, that's right on. I think that challenges me to get my attitude aligned because if it's true, and, and I believe it is, like you said, that God essentially is the one that withholds the tax money because it's his resources to begin with and he's providentially in control then the best thing I can do is get my attitude aligned with that truth and yep. not like hem and haw over the taxes or make a big deal about them. There, that's not saying that we shouldn't speak out when we think there's great, like a great inefficiency happening there. But at the end of the day, I want to be a legalist in obeying the things that God has given me to obey yeah. with the right intent in my heart. And this pushes me all the way back to remember just that God knew how really devastating and detrimental governments were going to be to his people. So all the way back in 1 Samuel, when the Israelites are basically saying, we reject you as King God, give us an earthly king like everybody else. That's the kind of jam that we want. It just boggles my mind. Yeah, it's crazy. But I I assume given the same choice, I do the same thing because I'd be like, well, I see all these temporal kingdoms around me. They've got roads and leadership and military and give me somebody who will lead. So in many ways, this is the thing we have asked for, which is ironic. Yeah, And what I love is that in 1 Samuel 8, Samuel basically says like, all right, let me give you like the Surgeon General's warning though on what the king is going to do, just so you know. So let me yeah. read like a couple of things about what he says. So this is starting in verse 11. So Samuel says, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. All right, here we go. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before the chariots. All right, that's fine, I guess. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and equip his chariots. Okay, fine. We want some military prowess. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. Okay. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. Okay, that seems like now you're kind of infringing. Like, I like the best of my stuff. Why are you taking my vineyards, olive orchards? So this is where we get into like specific measurements then. This blows me away. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men, your donkeys, and put them to work. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. So this is what we asked for. This is what the Israelites asked for. And it's right off the top, what strikes me is the fact that that 10% is essentially almost like a replacement of the tithe, so to speak. It's the only other place we get like that specific number is in relationship to tithe. And now here he says, the people want another leader other than God. And God says, you can have it. But what he's essentially saying here is he's going to tax the heck out of you. Yeah. Well, and and I think um, one of the things that I think we forget is there's a flip side of that story. 
right? So the, the Israelites reject God as their king, and they reject God's prophet as their king. There's this really right. interesting s- section where Samuel is basically like complaining to God, like, why have they rejected me? Samuel thought he would be the next leader of Israel. And God says, well, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. But the flip side of that is that God gives them the king that they deserve, not necessarily the king they want, Yes, in order to show them how great of a king God actually is and will be. And so for us, we, you know, it, it almost sounds, um, I don't know what the word is. It almost sounds like sloppy or trite to say like, well, we suffer under the oppression of the government. Cause like we, we are two white guys who have enough money to li- have discretionary incomes to make a podcast. Like we're not, we're not suffering that hard under the government, but there are times where like we do suffer under the oppression of the government. We are in the grand scheme of things, not necessarily because of taxation, but we're, we are in a context where, you know, there's this big controversy over, um, I can never say his name, uh, Abidi, who wrote this article about how the, the whole country should repent because of Martin Luther King's assassination. Oh, Did yeah, you read that? right. I think his his argument is kind of bunk, but we suffer in the context of an oppressive government system, which makes us uh, partners in sin sometimes. Mm-hmm. Right? There is a such thing as corporate guilt for for national actions. I don't think that applies to to the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. But our nation, we have national guilt for the fact that we have thousands of abortions every day. Right. You and I as individuals are not complicit in that, even even through our tax money. But as a nation, we're guilty of that. But that should, rather than get us really frustrated, that should cause us to anticipate the coming of our king who will do away with all injustice. Our government cannot do away with injustice. Our government can only further injustice. Even in their attempts to bring about justice, they only cause more injustice. But our king, when he comes will do away with injustice forever. And he reigns on the throne now and he will reign forevermore. And he's making our world. He will be remaking our world. I almost became a post-millennialist there. Did you hear it happen? He (laughs) he will remake our world and he's reigning on the throne now. and, And we're anticipating his coming where he will make all things new and all injustice will be done away with. And so when we, when we get frustrated because taxation is theft or whatever other anti-government thing we have going on at the moment, and and those arguments are fine. They're they're fine to have. We should remember that it's it's our groaning under our government is our groaning for our king. It has to be our groaning for our king, or it's a waste of time. Mm, now we're having some church up yeah, in here. I guess I you I really almost became a post millennialist there. Yeah, I saw it happening, and then it quickly turned. It was, was happening in slow motion, and I was like, no. Pull, I, was, I heard I it happening. Say, pull up, pull, pull up. up. You're about you were, to crash into a was, golden age. Yeah, that was really well said, though. I actually like that. There's Within this passage, it does remind us that we want to come under the leadership and the king who's not going to be like this, uh, like yeah. just taking all of our best stuff for the sake of that because of some power that's been bestowed on him, but because he's truly worthy of all those things because he is the author, the giver of life, yeah. the one who's redeemed all things. So at the end of the day, tax is one of those things where I feel that the scripture gives me an opportunity to be obedient. It's an exercise of trust. And at the same time, it's a wonderful place where I can show my attitude of joyfulness and love because nobody likes taxes. So this is like the easiest place to stand out with just a little bit of relief. Yep. And you don't have to be like the obnoxious dude that's like, I love writing a check to the government. 
Yeah. But I think when this comes up, we have a unique opportunity to show a different type of attitude or a different way of understanding what yeah. this all means, even maybe among like brothers and sisters, because again, taxes is like super odious across cultures. Like nobody's yeah. head pops off the pillow saying, I'm so glad it's tax day. You know what I never understood? This, this is what I don't understand. We're going to go way off topic here. Oh, let's do it. So the government has records of all the money that I've made, right? They have right. records of that. All of this stuff is in a computer somewhere. Why do I have to pay for TurboTax and put all of these figures into a computer that are already in a computer somewhere in order for me to get my money back from the government? It seems like it would actually be more effective if the government just processed all this stuff because then right. people could not avoid filing their taxes. That's just a pet peeve. No, I mean, that's, are you aware that that's like a whole big debate and there's like a lot of experimentation with that? Yeah, I'm sure there's a good reason. Uh, maybe there's not, but I'm sure somebody could make a good argument for why the government shouldn't be shouldn't be doing that. Like it would give them too much power or something. But right. It just it, it it's annoying because now I have to do my taxes. I have to pay TurboTax for the privilege of using their software. Um, and I'm going to get halfway through and they're going to say, we could save you a lot more money if you just buy the premium version. <laughs> and I'm going to be like, <sighs> and then I'm going to pay for the premium version. And they're going to be like, oh, by the way, you don't make enough money to itemize. So the premium version doesn't help right, you. Doesn't make any sense. But we're not going to give you your money back anyways. That's what so, I'm going And for that matter, in terms of like logistics, like I, I'm guessing we both agree that where there are allowances in our tax code to save money through like your charitable giving to churches. Like I'm totally fine with that because oh, I, yeah. we would, we would be giving to our churches anyway. So if the government allows you to take a deduction for that to reduce your taxable income, that's totally fine. I, yeah. I, mean, I don't think there's any, any weird, you know, like juxtaposition there. It's, it's about intent for me yeah. still. So if you're just giving to your church to get the tax deduction, that's a problem. But right. You should be giving generously. And so if you're able to take a little bit of that off your tax bill, I think that that's fine. I don't f find that the Bible would make us complicit in some kind of wrongdoing by taking yeah. advantage of that. No, I agree. That was a strange turn to the practical at the end there. You like that? <laughs> I yeah, do like just it. whip that right around. But there are some countries, like I'm pretty sure Australia tried this, where like the tax return is just a postcard. Because you're right. All the information is there. So basically like, they send you postcards like, is this how much you made? Like double checking the records. Is this how much you paid? And then you're just like, yeah, send it back in and it's done. Yeah. Yeah. Like every year. So I'm on an income-based repayment for my student loans, like a lot of people are. And every year I have to go to the website and literally all I do is I sign into the website and click a button and they cross-reference with my tax return from last year and they do everything, but I still have to click a button. And I just want to be like, can I just sign a piece of paper that says you can click the button every year so I don't have to I don't have to deal with this all the time? But they have all my information. Why can't they just do the taxes? Right. That is it, a great argument. It's not like it would cost them a, a bunch of money to do it. It would probably they would probably generate more revenue for the government because people who aren't filing their taxes, it would file their taxes. Right. Make it more efficient for sure. Get more participation. I feel like everybody has a tax story. So this is mine real quick as we close. So I used to live in New Hampshire where you live currently. Yeah. In New Hampshire is great. I mean, that live free and die motto, they actually hold to. So yeah. no income tax, right? No local tax. So I was, when I lived there, I was only used to filing federal tax. And then I moved to Pennsylvania and I had filed taxes for the first year I was here. And then somebody said to me, kind of like in passing, because we were just complaining as people often do about taxes. And they said, oh yeah, well, how is like your state and local? And I was like, 
say what? Well, state and local. <laughs> <laughs> like, you, you gotta pay state and local. I was like, what do you mean state? And they're like, well, you gotta file like, like, you know, you file federal taxes. I was like, yeah, like TurboTax. Like, you got to do that for the state too. And I was like, what? That's insane. And then Did like, you like not notice them taking money out of your paychecks? I, I was not, I, I'm kind of embarrassing. Like I just didn't pay attention. Like I didn't think I have to, had to file a return. So yeah. same thing with a the local. They're like, and you're local? I was like, who are those fools? And why do I have to do that? So I had to like go back retrospectively and file it. I sent them like a letter, which I'm sure they found to be like really idiotic. But I was like, I'm so sorry. I just moved. You guys have state and local tax. Yeah. That's unusual that's for funny. me. So th- they sent me something back and it was, it was all good, but so I mean, obedience my, is, is killer sometimes. My funny uh, tax story, which is like a cry yourself to sleep tax story is when we moved here, um, Ashley, when we first moved here, she didn't have a full-time job yet. Um, and so she was listed as a substitute teacher at uh, mid Vermont Christian school where um, our father teaches. And she, she picked up like two days that she substitute taught for a year and then she got a full-time position. And so she wasn't substitute teaching anymore. And so the first year that we moved here, we had to file taxes in four different States. And in uh, Vermont, she made like $70 in uh, income and we ended up paying more than $70 between the cost of the, the turbo tax and the tax that we had to pay to Vermont. Then we ended up paying more than she had made for the whole year. And it was That's like, awful. yeah, this is ridiculous. It's really dumb. And see, it's maybe it's stories like this that kind of prove the point that obedience with these kind of things with a joyful heart and a yeah. decent spirit about them say something about our commitment to the kingdom. Yeah. Yeah, and we could laugh at it. I mean, it's it's we annoying. Can. There's all sorts of annoying things that we have to do as Christians because it's the right thing to do. Right. And sometimes it means you got to drive a you got to drive slower than everybody else. It's there's this turn when you're when I'm driving into work every morning. I'm just waiting for someone to get out of their car and road rage the junk out of me. Um, there's a turn where you pull up and you turn right, but it's a, a red arrow on right. And there's no reason for it to be a red arrow. There used to be that you were turning into a two-lane uh, state highway. And so they didn't want you turning into to, to, into traffic because it was busy enough that it was just dangerous. But then they expanded it so there's three lanes. So there's literally an empty lane for you to turn in. But they never changed the light. So almost every morning I pull up there and I wait for the, the light to turn green. And some guy is always behind me laying on his horn for me to go. And I'm like... <laughs> <sighs> but it's the state it's the civil magistrate they it told me i can't magistrate. turn they told me i can't turn on a red and there's no good reason for it but they still said it and i have to be obedient to it there's something profoundly sanctifying when we're in that situation in a situation that seems like very silly but yeah. we obey and the thought in our mind is this is how god would have me to be, to behave right now i mean there's right. some, there's something actual actually beautiful about that and really sanctifying because in that moment, isn't it so much easier just to say, normally everywhere else you can make a right turn on red. And I know people behind me are going to get ticked off if I'm just sitting here. So I'm just going to do it. But if our minds are so conditioned to follow after God that we say, I'm going to be obedient because I have a father who's put all these things into play, including the road signs, which I mean, that's legit. That's as Calvin is, we would say all that stuff is under God's direct supervision and control. Then we're participating in some small way 
not like the way we've talked about, but in our sanctification, at least we're, we're being open to it. Right. We're not sanctifying ourselves. Right. Make that clear. It's, yeah. I'm going to just get a bumper sticker that says, I'm not turning right because of Romans 13. <laughs> that's, that's all it's going to say. You know, I think you're onto something there. That's actually a pretty brilliant idea. Like I obey traffic laws, Romans 13, something yeah. like that. Yeah. I don't think that's going to, that, that's like an idea for fast God stuff, stupid evangelism ideas. But <laughs> Yeah, that is true. Bumper stickers are probably inherently yeah. really bad testimonials, but yeah. that's only because we drive horribly. We do. We're all terrible idiots on the road. Yeah. So, well, that seems like a really great place <laughs> to wrap up this conversation, but we would be remiss, of course, if we didn't repeat again, the fact that we love to have people join this conversation or suggest other topics, or throw out some questions. And the best way to do that is by calling the voicemail, which you evidently know exceptionally well by heart, Tony. (laughs) 607-444-2767. Bros. Bros. So seriously, call us up, leave us a voicemail, say hello, and suggest a topic or a question. Yeah, we got question cast coming up in a couple weeks, and we'd love to get some more voices to play. So voicemails will get the priority in terms of what we respond to. Especially so. voicemails from people who don't live in the U.S. Yeah. Please don't send us a bill for your phone because we're not going to pay it. <laughs> it's not going to happen. But I'm just trying to think what that situation would be like where somebody leaves a voicemail but says, you actually owe me. Yeah, I just get a bill in the mail somehow. I'd be like, how am I going to pay 35 pounds? I don't even have pounds. <laughs> I'd have to wait until the dollar was strong and pay it on that day. This got to be a pretty financial cast. Now we're into exchange rates. I mean, we're in episode 83 and it took us this long to get into an actual like semi-financial topic. Yeah, that's true. We, We took our time. That's for sure. Well, Tony, until next week, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. What if I